Hi, and welcome to the Vineyard Northwest podcast. At Vineyard Northwest, we aim to be a culture that welcomes heaven to earth by raising up world-changing kingdom leaders. We hope you enjoy this message from our senior pastor, Dan Cochran. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all here today. It's good to get together and worship and just open our hearts to God. God does so many great things in our lives when we do that, doesn't he? So today, I'm gonna talk about, I'm gonna give a message that is titled Developing Grit. But as I was reviewing the message this morning, I thought, I wish I had named it Godly Grit. Because the word grit, you know, can, has, has a lot of um, secular implications, I think, to it. Like, like I'm just going to tough this out. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be strong, and I'm going to make it through this. But when we're talking about grit, we're not talking about that. And in fact, we're talking about something that's just uh, completely Holy Spirit driven. Now, uh, from uh, from just the cultural viewpoint, a woman named Angela Duckworth in a book called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, said this about grit. She said, why do naturally talented people frequently fail while other far less gifted individuals go on to achieve amazing things? She said, the secret to outstanding achievement is not talent, but passionate persistence. In other words, grit. Now, I'm, my definition that, I, that I'm using for our purposes, uh, for a follower of Christ, I would say this is grit. Grit is Holy Spirit enablement to persevere towards the fulfillment of a God-given kingdom objective in the face of difficulty, resistance, and setback. Let me give that to you again. It's Holy Spirit enablement. It's, it's a work of the Spirit in our lives, in our hearts. It's a Holy Spirit enablement that enables us to keep on going, to persevere. But not just to persevere, but persevere towards the fulfillment of a God-given kingdom goal or objective. And to do that in the face of resistance, in the face of difficulty, and in the face of setbacks. In fact, that's really part of dealing with grit. It is being able to press through difficulty and pain. Now, um, as I thought about this this morning, I, I thought grit is really essential to discipleship because anyone who accepts Jesus, anyone who says, I'm gonna follow Jesus, needs to be able to, to persevere for the long haul. Anyone involved in ministry needs to be able to persevere for the long haul because it's not easy. And there are things that happen that are discouraging. There are times we fail and we look internally and we say, well, you know, I'm a failure. I can't do this any longer. You know, why am I doing this? It takes grit to press through those moments. It takes grit to grow spiritually. Really, it does. To hear from God, to see what God wants to do in my life, and then to uh, yield to the Holy Spirit as he works that out into my character. So the Holy Spirit works that out into part of who I am. That takes grit. It takes perseverance to keep on going. And not just because we're the kind of people that do that, but because the Holy Spirit is in us, enabling us to keep doing that. In ministries, there are times that we persevere in a certain ministry until we see a breakthrough. And we've had a ministry here called Healing Rooms for a number of years now. And uh, we had, they, they were uh, shut down during the COVID era. 
but uh, we opened them back up again a few months ago. And, um, and there are times that we have seen good things happen in healing rooms, powerful things happen in healing rooms, but other times not as powerful. And last night we had our healing rooms here and there was a woman that was brought by her friend who's sitting in the room right now and she was blind, she was legally blind. When she would look at someone's face, all she could see would be a smear, like she could see the color and maybe the rough shape, but no details. And she received prayer, and when she opened her eyes, she looked at her friend and said, I can see your face. And, the, and, and she said to the lady praying for her, do you have a blouse on that has stripes on it? Because before she couldn't see the stripes, and she couldn't make out the details of anyone's face. And so this lady came here legally blind, not, not being able to see, but she left here being able to see. And yeah, isn't that awesome? Yeah. And her friend followed up this morning, and her eyesight is even better today than it was yesterday when she left here. It's even improved more. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And so you keep praying, and you keep going for it, and you keep going for it in faith, believing, and you see breakthrough. And, and when you begin to see breakthrough, then you, your, your expectation begins to rise and you expect even greater things. Because God tells us in the Bible not to look to the past and say, oh, if only we could have what happened in the past. He says, no, he says, forget the past. You ain't seen nothing yet. I'm gonna do a new thing. And, and, I'm, and I'm gonna open up something totally new for you. And, and I think we might be at the brink of that right now. This, this whole idea of more powerful healings, more healings happening. And, and so uh, let's all have faith for that together, okay? And just say, Lord, we wanna see more. We wanna see more. More of your power for your glory so people come to faith in Jesus, become part of the kingdom, and press into spiritual growth with Jesus and advancing his kingdom. So we're gonna look at um, Elijah and uh, the events around Mount Carmel in Elijah's life. Elijah was a prophet from the Old Testament, and um, many, many um, great things that he did. He's probably best remembered in a broad sense as far as like even culturally across our culture. A lot of people would know this, that Elijah was taken up to heaven. A lot of people would say in a fiery chariot, but actually he was taken to heaven in a whirlwind. There was a fiery chariot there, but it wasn't what actually took him to heaven. And so he's pretty famous for that. Uh, even a lot of people that um, are not believers would remember that. But this other event at Mount Carmel is uh, something that, as, as believers, we would all be pretty much in touch. If, you know, if we've read the Bible or walked with Jesus for long, we'd be pretty much in touch with what happened uh, at, at that event where there's this big contest. Uh, Elijah calls fire down from heaven, and there's this big thing, and then he ends a drought with prayer, and some other fantastic things happen. But at the end of that whole event, Elijah crashes into an emotional abyss. He becomes depressed, despondent, and hopeless, and he literally says, God, kill me. I, I wanna die. I don't wanna be a prophet anymore. I just wanna end this all. And I wanna tell you the story today of how that happened and, uh, and, and, and see some of the facets of that because I think it's easy to look at Elijah's life and to see that and then to think, man, he started so well. He started so strong. What the heck happened to this guy? 
You know, there have been so many books written on finishing well and ending your life well and ending your ministry well. And you would look at Elijah and say, wow, dude, you know, if you had just persevered, if you had just trusted God more, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But what I want to say is this. I want to present this, that Elijah is a picture of grit, that he, he wasn't a failure, that he persevered through the difficulty, he persevered through the, through the depression he experienced, through the emotional uh, crash that he had, and he came out the other end, and that is exactly what grit is. It's the ability to face even personal failure and not quit, to keep on going. And Elijah's heart is, is broken at this point that we, that we see him in this in this pit of despair, but his heart's renewed and he keeps going for several years after this. And so we have a lot to learn about Elisha, Elijah from, about grit from this whole thing. Now, the whole thing starts, well, it's in, it's in 1 Kings 18 and 19. So if you have a Bible or if you have a phone with a Bible on it, would you please uh, turn to that with me? 1 Kings 18, that's in the Old Testament, about 25% of the way through the Bible. And so in, verse, in chapter 17, the whole thing starts with this. 17.1. Now Elisha, Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of, settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, Ahab's the king, wicked, one of the most wicked kings Israel ever had. And by the way, Elijah ministered to the northern tribes. By this time, the kingdom of Israel has been divided into seven tribes of Judah, and the northern tribe, which was called Israel. So Elijah had a tough job because Israel was much more, um, was much less in tune with the Lord than Judah was. Judah had the temple, it had Jerusalem, and, and that kept them more centered on the Lord than the northern half of the nation, Israel. So Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain three these years except by my word. And so God has spoken to Elijah and he said, Elijah, I'm giving you authority over the rain. You have authority to declare when the drought begins. You have authority to, to declare when the drought ends. And so this drought goes on for three years and during that time, God provides for Elijah. First, he provides for him uh, through setting him, uh, sending him to a brook, the brook Cherith. And Elijah has ravens that come and feed him. They bring him food. And he eats there, drinks out of the brook. And he survives for this season of time. But then because there's a drought in the land, eventually the brook dries up. And so what happens then? Well, God spoke to Elijah by the way, there have been a lot of sermons given titled, When the Brook Dries Up. And in this case, God speaks to Elijah, and he says, go to, the, go to Zarephath. And that was part of Sidon, which was a neighboring nation. Interestingly, that's where Ahab uh, found his wife within Sidon. And he said, go to Sidon, Zarephath, there's a widow there, and she's going to provide for you. So Elijah goes, and lo and behold, this widow happens to be out picking up some sticks, and he walks up to her, and he says, um, you know, give me something to eat. Give me a drink of water and something to eat. 
And she says to him, she said, I have just a little bit of oil and just a handful of uh, ground meal, corn left. I was going to bake that. My son and I were going to eat it, and then we're going to die. In other words, after that, we have no food left. We're just going to starve to death. And here's what Elijah says to her in 1714. Uh, He says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. He gives her that reassurance. You do this for me and God will provide for you. And so she makes him a little cake. He eats it and God provides uh, for them for the next two to three years. Don't know exactly how long it was, but we know the whole drought lasted three years. So uh, he, he stays there, God provides. Now in chapter 18 and verse one, uh, here's what we read at the end of the three years. This is where the story really begins. It says, now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah finds this guy, Obadiah, who was one of Ahab's chief, chief guys. And Obadiah happens to also be a believer. He's, being, he's faithful to Yahweh. And he comes to Obadiah and he says, Obadiah, I, I wanna see Ahab, go tell Ahab to come and I'll be right here. Now Obadiah, uh, he's, he responds in fear. He says, why are you doing this to me? He says, I know what's gonna happen. I'm gonna go tell Ahab to come here and find you. And then the spirit of the Lord's gonna catch you up and take you someplace else and you're not gonna be here. And Ahab's gonna kill me. And he says, don't you know that I'm a follower of Yahweh? And when Jezebel was killing the prophets of God, I saved the lives of a hundred prophets and hid them from her. Don't you know I did all of that? So don't do this to me now. So Elijah guarantees him. He says, no, I will be here when Ahab comes. And so Ahab, he gives the message and Ahab comes and here's the first thing Ahab says to Elijah. It says in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 18, 1 Kings. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? Now stop right there for a second. Isn't it interesting? Who's, Who's the real troublemaker in Israel? It's this king that's unfaithful to God. And Ahab knew enough to know that he was being unfaithful to the Lord. He knew enough to know that he was the source of the drought. And yet because God carried the drought out through the, through the means of Elijah, he calls Elijah the uh, troubler of Israel. And so Elijah comes right back at him and says, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now, Baal was a deity in, uh, the, the, in, in the land of that day. Most of the Canaanites were Baal worshipers. Baal was considered the god of fertility, and he had a consort named Asherah. Uh, in, in some scenarios, it was his mo- she was his mother and also his consort, and others just his consort. It's really difficult to sort out all of the ins and outs of the, the deities of that time. But what they believed was that when the two of them came together physically, that that was produced fertility in the land. 
And so they believed, and this is crazy, but they believed if they would just have sex enough down here, the gods are gonna look and say, oh, hey, Asherah, you're looking pretty good today. And the two of them would get together, and then that would supernaturally produce uh, profit and, and welfare for the land. And so this cult was a sex cult. It was, it, was, it was a cult that had a lot of perverted sexual activity. The priests were prostitutes. And, and, um, and it, it was an abomination in God's eyes that, that, they, that, that it was, that it was uh, this way. But they also uh, accepted sacrifices. And not always, but in extreme circumstances, they would sacrifice their firstborn. If you're really in trouble, sacrifice your firstborn to Baal, and you might really get somewhere with him, and he might really uh, bless you with, with blessing and fertility. So it was an evil religion, and uh, being a ba- Ahab himself had become a Baal worshiper because his wife was a Baal worshiper, and his wife Jezebel was from Sidon, and the king of Sidon was her father, and he was a Baal worshiper, and prior to becoming king, he was actually one of the chief priests of Baal worship in that whole nation of Sidon. And so she's really deeply ingrained, Jezebel, in Baal worship, and she brought it into Israel, and when she came in, she slaughtered the prophets of Israel, all the, all the godly uh, priests and prophets, and that's why Obadiah uh, was able to tell Elijah that he had saved a hundred of them from her. Now, as the story goes, Elijah tells Ahab, bring the 450 priests of uh, Baal to the Mount Carmel and bring the 400 priests of Asherah to to Mount Carmel. And we're gonna have a contest. He said, we're gonna say, whosoever God answers by fire from heaven is the true God. And so the priests of Baal come they build an altar, they put offering on the altar, and they spend the whole day praying. And of course, nothing happens the whole day. They cut themselves, they wail, they scream, nothing happens. And so at the end of the day, Elijah builds an altar, sacrifices an a, 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 a animal, puts it on the altar with wood, and then he dumps gallons and gallons of water on top of it. And he'd actually dug a trench around the altar so that the water that ran off the altar would be kept in that trench. So nobody could ever think that there was some sort of trickery happening here. Everyone knows wet wood doesn't burn. And so he calls on the Lord, and in an instant, fire comes from heaven and consumes not only the offering on the altar and the wood, but the altar and the water as well. It licks up the water out of the trough. And so Baal had challenged the people earlier. Um, He said to all the people, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord's God, and the Lord there means Yahweh, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But and the people in that case didn't answer him a word because they're waiting to see who wins the contest. And so now it's obvious Yahweh is God. And, and so they take these 450 priests of Baal and the 400 priests of Asherah and, and they slaughter them all. Get, get, get rid of all of them because they had to get rid of this pagan religion, had, had to get it out of the land for the nation to return to the Lord. And so what happens next is, you know, Elijah's feeling pretty good right now. And he's feeling pretty good about himself, his ministry. 
uh, you know, some powerful stuff is happening. So now he goes up the mountain a little further, and he prays that it would rain. And he sends his servant up to the top of the peak of the mountain, comes back down and says, do you see any clouds? No, no clouds. So he prays again, he prays again and again. And it wasn't until the seventh time he prayed that his servant said, well, I see a little cloud out over the Mediterranean Sea about the size of a man's hand. And Elijah said, okay, that's it. That's the storm. There's a storm coming. He had enough faith to recognize that, to see just that little cloud is the beginning of the whole thing. And it's interesting, though, that he had authority to call the rain back, but he still had to pray seven times before it happened. Isn't that interesting? That's grit. That's grit. What if, what if he had hit number five and said, man, this isn't working. I must have been mistaken. God told me I had authority to bring the rain back. I've asked him five times or six times, and it hasn't happened. What if he had given up then? But he, he perseveres. He has the grit to keep going. And finally, after prayer number seven, uh, he sees the rain coming. Now, I have a feeling that at this point, he's starting to feel kind of friendly towards Ahab. I think he's thinking that Ahab has seen this whole thing, and Ahab most surely now is going to repent is going to start following Yahweh. And, he, and so he goes to Ahab and says, Ahab, you better hurry to get back to the palace because there's a big storm coming. And so Ahab gets in his chariot and takes off. And the Holy Spirit comes on uh, Elijah supernaturally, and he outruns the chariot. This is, uh, he runs faster than the chariot to get back to the city and back to the palace. Okay, so, so far, so good. Now, what happens is, Ahab tells Jezebel what happened. And Jezebel sends a message to uh, Elijah and says, you're gonna die, man. By, if, if, may the gods do worse to me than you've done to my prophets if you don't join them tomorrow by tomorrow at this time. And what happens now? Elijah, strong Elijah, the man who confronts kings, the man who runs faster than a chariot, faster than a speeding bullet, what happens? He crashes. He just, he just totally crashes emotionally when she gives him this message. And you see that in chapter 19, starting in verse 2. Uh, after Jezebel hears, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now, I don't know why he went another day's journey into the wilderness if he was trying to commit suicide. I don't know. It could have been that. I mean, you, you walk far enough into the desert without any food or water, and you stay there for a couple of days, you're not going to have the strength to walk back. And maybe that's what he was thinking. I don't know. But he's here in the desert, and he crashes. He falls asleep. And now God feeds him. God sends an angel to feed him this time. And he eats and then he wakes, the angel wakes him up, he eats, and then he falls asleep again. And then the angel wakes him, he gives him another meal, and says, eat this, the journey's long, 
You know, you need to go to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law. And so Elijah then goes on this journey to Mount Horeb, and he's in a cave. And in that cave, God speaks to him. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds by saying, well, you know, I'm the only one left, etc., etc." And then God says, listen, Elijah, I'm going to pass by outside the cave, and I want you to come out and, and be with me. And so then it says that a, uh, first, what was it? First it was the earthquake, and Elijah didn't go out. Then it was a tornado that came by, and Elijah didn't go out. Then it was a firestorm that, that ravaged through the, through the valley, and Elijah didn't go out. But then he hears God speak, just in a still, small, quiet voice, and it says, Elijah wrapped his cloak around himself and went out to the mouth of the cave to see the Lord. Now, what God's done for Elijah so far is he has given him the opportunity to rest and to get some nourishment so that he can start thinking right. You know, he's been through so much, all these events. You know, seeing wonderful, powerful things happen is still almost debilitatingly a wearying for a person. The whole confrontation with the priests of Baal, the last three years being on the run from Ahab and, uh, and, and seeing the rain come, then running back supernaturally, this guy's worn out and he needed rest. And one of the things we have to realize is in order to persevere, in order to, to, to have really godly grit, we really do need to rest. We need to take care of ourselves physically. And in our day and age, we gotta say, we need to exercise too. Now, for Elijah, he probably did a lot of walking everywhere he went, probably got his 10,000 steps in every day by noon, and uh, he, didn't, we, he didn't have to focus on exercise. You and I do, because we're, we're a very passive, non-physical culture. So to stay healthy and to be able to live with grit, that's an important thing. But then what God does is he's showing Elijah what he is really like. And what he, the statement of the... Uh, earthquake, tornado, and firestorm. It's like God is saying to Elijah, yeah, Elijah, there are times fire does come from heaven. There are times fire comes from heaven, but it, that's not really the essence of how I view my enemies. That's not really the essence of who I am. And he wants, he wants Elijah to understand his heart and his ways. And so it's a still small voice that God's in. Yeah, the fire comes from heaven. It does at times. But that's not, that's not the standard. In fact, Ezekiel 33, 11 through 12. You see, he wants, he wants Elijah to know that he's not an angry, vindictive God. He's not in heaven saying, I'm going to get those enemies of mine, and I'm going to grind them into the dust. Nothing like that. In fact, in Ezekiel, it says, as surely as I live, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. And then he goes on in that verse to say, oh, that they might turn and live. He says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. I want them to repent. I want them to have life. And so he has fed and rested Elijah. Now he's given Elijah a new perspective of who he is. Then he clarifies uh, Elijah's task. And he, and he tells Elijah that he still has something to do. He has to go back and anoint Elisha as the next prophet. And he has to anoint Haziel as king of uh, Sidon, and he has to anoint Jehu as king of Israel. And he does that 
but um, it, you know, it's three years before Elijah actually goes up to heaven in that whirlwind. So he has another three years of ministry before uh, he actually gets his wish and, and goes back to heaven. So what God's telling him when he gives him this new assignment is the mission is still on, Elijah. The mission is still on. It's, it's still a go. And so Elijah has to learn how to adjust his expectations. In light of what God's shown him, who God is, and God's mission is still alive, the mission is still on, he has to adjust his expectations. And I think the mistake Elijah made was, after Mount Carmel and the fire coming down and getting rid of all the priests of Baal, I think he assumed that Ahab would now depose Jezebel. He would uh, take her off the throne so she could no longer be queen and no longer have the influence that she had had over the nation of Israel to worship Baal. That was his expectation. Wouldn't, doesn't it seem reasonable? I mean, big, big battle, you win it, and you kill all the enemy. You kind of expect that things are gonna change. But when Jezebel comes back at him with her threat to him, he realizes things haven't changed. Ahab has, has not taken her off the throne, and he realizes that... Um, that it, what, what he thought was going to happen hasn't happened. And so it's, there's disappointment in that. He's experiencing disappointment. But what Elijah, well, Bill Johnson said this. He said that the hardest thing prophets have to deal with is timing. Timing is the hardest thing. They'll often get the right word and sometimes feel pressured to give a time, uh, put, put timing around it. And other times they just do and, and the timing is off. And so Elijah here is a, a prophet and he knows what God's doing, but he's expected God to do something earlier than God is actually going to do it because God is gonna remove Ahab from the throne. He is gonna remove Jezebel, but it's not time yet to do that. And so in many respects, what we have to do to, to live with godly grit is to adjust our view of time. Because sometimes God does things suddenly. You know, there was a time that uh, the capital city of Israel was surrounded by an enemy army, and they, they were at a point in the siege where they're actually practicing cannibalism. It was horrible. And the prophet of God said, tomorrow at this time, he says, a core of wheat is gonna be like five cents. In other words, there's gonna be abundant food tomorrow by five o'clock. And one of the king's officials who was standing beside uh, the king when this prophet gave that prophecy, and this guy, the, this time the guy got the timing right. Um, he, he said, well, it can't be. And he said, well, it's gonna be. You're not gonna get to take part in it, but it is gonna be. And then that official was trampled by the people who were running out the gates to get the food because what happened was God sent an angel that night and he killed 185,000 enemy soldiers. They probably had an army of 200 to 250,000 soldiers there, and the rest of them that lived fled, and they left everything there, left all their tents, all their clothes, all their food, all their supplies, all their weapons. They just ran in panic. And so now the people of the city have all of this abundance of food, and God did that in a 24-hour period. He turned everything around instantly. He does that sometimes, and we shouldn't be surprised when he does, and we should ask him to do that. But we also have to recognize that other times God works through process and, and he takes time to do things. And when he's doing that, 
it's, it's not that he's being slow. In fact, in Peter, uh, when Peter was addressing people who thought God uh, should have already sent Jesus to return, uh, he, he, Peter says, the Lord is not delayed as if he is you know, not paying attention or anything like that. This has been delayed because he wants everybody to have a chance to repent. And so sometimes God works suddenly, sometimes it takes time for it to work, and we have to be content with that, and, and we have to adjust our expectations. And part of that is just having a warfare mentality, because it, spiritual life, uh, ministry, and by the way, all of you are called, if you know Jesus, then you are gifted and called by God to be a part of ministry. You're, you're gifted not, not to come to church, but to come to church to get filled up and enlivened and empowered so you can be part of ministry. Some ministries happen here in the church. Some ministries happen as people from the church or leaders in the church band together and develop a ministry like healing rooms. Some ministries happen outside the walls of the church and, and we, we hope and wanna see more and more happen outside the walls of the church. But to realize that we are all called to be part of advancing the kingdom of God means that we're all involved in, in the need to understand that it's warfare. In a warfare, things don't always happen the way you want them to. You send a patrol out and it gets ambushed. And the general didn't want that patrol to get ambushed, but you send, the, the warfare brings all these unexpected things. And it brings pain as well. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1.24, when we realize that it is warfare, that there is pain, and we have that expectation, we're not surprised by it, then that helps us to press through the pain because we're not surprised by it. It, it helps us to live with godly grit. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, meaning the church, which is, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings or afflictions. Now, what could be lacking in Christ's sufferings? Wasn't the cross complete? It was. Let me answer that. It was complete. Jesus said, it is finished. The sufferings of Christ on the cross were everything that needed to happen for God's purposes to be accomplished. And that purpose was to bring the kingdom of God to earth and to bring people into the kingdom who would be forgiven and get new hearts and new minds, be kingdom people, indwelt by the Holy Spirit so they could advance the kingdom of God on this earth. But if it took suffering for Jesus to get the kingdom here, then it makes sense that advancing the kingdom is gonna bring hardship as well. It's gonna bring suffering. And so what he means by what was lacking in Christ's suffering, Jesus went back to heaven and he gave it to us to advance the kingdom on the earth. And so when we, when we face hardship and difficulty, that's what he means by that, that we are filling up, we are completing the process that Jesus called us to, that Jesus started. And so there is difficulty in the whole thing, but duty is a huge part of this as well. And it, it, we have to have an underlying sense of duty. And especially the warfare analogy, soldiers have duty and they live by duty. 
And you and I, fortunately, we get to live by joy and peace and relationship with Jesus. But there are times when it's duty that's going to carry us through. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, he said, I have this charge from God to preach the gospel. He says, if I do it joyfully, in other words, when I'm on top of the world and everything's going great, I have a reward. And you know what his reward is? His reward is he gets to do it. His reward is he gets to do the thing he was designed and gifted and called by God to do. That's the reward. But he says, if I do it without joy, then I have an obligation to fulfill or a duty. And what duty will do is carry you through difficult times when your heart really is not emotionally engaged in what you're doing, but you know it's the right thing. And for, for Elijah, what, what made him go, leave the desert and go to Mount Horeb? What was that? He wasn't excited at the moment, but God told him to do it, and he did it out of duty. And in the cave, uh, he's there out of a sense of duty and obligation to God. Now, I believe he was revived when he heard the voice of God, but what, what carried him through that period of wanting to end his, wanting to leave this world was a sense of duty that kept him going. Now, learning how to handle pain and loss involves um, resisting self-pity, avoiding self-pity, not, not giving in to self-pity. Uh, you know, Elijah said, I'm the only one left. Woe is me, I'm the only one left. And God doesn't tell him this until the very end of their interaction. But he says, no, Elijah, I have 7,000 others just like you. And so uh, Steve Backlund says this. He says, things were 7,000 times better than Elijah thought they were. <laughs> Isn't that good? <laughs> Elijah says, I'm all alone. That's what self-pity will do to you. It makes you feel all alone. It, it, it makes you, you kind of like implode internally. So we resist um, self-pity when we're facing hardship. Uh, and if, if it's God disciplining us, I mean, there have been times when I've said, well, God, did I do something wrong? Is that why this happened? And, and, and I've since learned that that's not the case. Um, that's not how God operates. When God said to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? That was fatherly discipline. He's pointing, he's not talking about why are you here at this spot? He's saying, why are you here in this state? Why is your mind in this place? What's going on, Elijah? That was discipline. And, and the chastisement that the Lord gives to his born-again children who have new hearts, he doesn't have to break our legs to get our attention. He, now, if you do break your leg, you fall off a ladder and you break your leg, and you're laid up and you're, you're praying more and you're spending more time with God, you're gonna grow spiritually because of the broken leg, but that doesn't mean God broke your leg. That's just one of the events of life, and, and, you, and you profited by it by seeking God more earnestly. But um, we, we need to recognize that the pain is not something that God's doing to us. In Psalm 37, 13, the psalmist says, I would have despaired unless I had believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's the basis right there for godly grit. It is hope. It is the hope, God's voice gives us hope. When he speaks to us, it fills us with hope. And hope is the confidence that whatever happens tomorrow, I'm gonna be okay. 
Hope is the confidence that tomorrow is going to be better than today, and I have, I have power to help make it so. And so, my final thing I want to say is this. We need to learn to hear the voice of Jesus, just like Elijah did. He, he, didn't, he didn't hear God's voice in the wind, or the fire, or the earthquake. He did hear God's voice in that whisper, and he recognized it. And so, my encouragement to you would be, start reading John 15, and read it and ask God, what does it mean to abide? Show me what it means to abide, God. Read it day after day after day until you get a clear picture from God what it means to abide in Christ because that's when you're gonna be able to recognize his voice and that's, that's what gives us godly grit is hearing God's voice and being strengthened by that so that we step up in hope and we forge ahead in spite of the pain we might be experiencing. So would you stand with me? I'm gonna pray and then Mike is gonna come and close the service. Father, uh, we do call out to you that you would just instill in each one of us a new fresh sense of what it means to persevere, what it means to keep going, and what it means to walk in godly grit and, and enable us to, to keep pressing ahead into fulfilling your purpose and your call in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.